Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Urgent Americans. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, my guest today is Sarah Park Dolan, a professor of literature and an advocate, one of the biggest advocates for diversity in children's literature. So glad to have her. It's a bit of a long conversation, but it is worth listening to. Um, you're going to get a lot out of it. And we are launching this episode on April 29th, which marks the 28th uh, anniversary of an event that really shaped Korean-American history forever. Uh, Koreans know it as Saigu, which literally translates to 429. And it marks the first day of LA riots in 1992 that burned Koreatown. Many buildings were impacted, lives were lost. I ask you to spend some time today to do some research on what the impact of Saigu has had on not just the Korean American community, but Los Angeles overall and in race relations. And Sarah will share a story about that as well. Um, so thanks for listening. And here now is my conversation with Sarah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans, uh, wherever you are in the world today and wherever you may be listening to this from. We hope that you are staying safe. We hope that you are staying healthy. And we hope that you are taking care of yourself mentally and emotionally um, in ways that help you get through these challenging times um, in, in the best way that you can and the best way that you know how. Um, as it has been said many, many times, we are going through extremely challenging times um, right now. Uh, we are recording this episode on Friday, April 17th, and I'm starting to hear some really disturbing or scary news out of certain states that things are starting to open up. So. Um, as a bunch of people who believe in science and as a bunch of people who care deeply about the safety of all of us, uh, we and I especially really hope that you are taking every precaution that you can to help us get through these times. Um, and yeah, we're all making sacrifices. Yeah, it sucks. Um, but, you know, listen to more of these podcasts or go read a book. Um, we're going to be talking about books a lot today. My guest today is somebody I've had the distinct pleasure of knowing now for almost 20 years. Uh, she saw me as a young, foolish, and childish college freshman, college sophomore. I don't know exactly when we met, um, but we overlapped the years there. And Sarah is somebody that I looked up to then. I still look up to now, um, and in different ways. And I think that evolution has occurred um, even more so when we reconnected a few years ago and started to learn more about the work that she has made her life's calling, which is in the field of education with an emphasis in Asian American writing and authors, but even more particularly in children's literature. And that interest has exponentially gone off the charts. Obviously, when I became a dad a little more than three years ago and realizing the importance, not only of us hearing ourselves in stories, but for our children who are just sponges. Um, so super excited. I've been waiting for this one for a really long time. Uh, Let's welcome Sarah Park Dolan to the show. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jerry. It's really nice to be here. Finally, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know. Maybe some other listeners are like, man, Jerry, you say that about everybody, but you know, you really were on the short list of people that, given who you are, given what you do, I think it's you are one of the perfect people to talk about identity, not just in addition to your own lived experience, but how it is perceived in the written world. We'll get to talking about your work and some of your favorite books and some of the things that we can do to help the spread of Asian American literature. Um, but let's learn about Sarah as the person. 
Um, okay. So as, as, as mentioned, you know, we met back 20 years ago in Los Angeles um, when I went to USC and you're at UCLA. Um, tell us a little bit more about uh, Sarah how, and, and how the Park family became Korean American. Where did you grow up? Um, how, and how did that environment shape, if it did at all, your Korean and or American identity and a little bit more about your childhood? Sure. Um, yeah, first, thanks so much for making this podcast. Um, I was really excited when you first started telling me about it and was um, I was hoping that you'd uh, have me on at some point. And I know that this particular semester has been really, really busy for me. And so it was um, hard for me to, to say no um, at first. But now that we're home, we've been home now for 34 days. Um, you're right, I, I do have a little bit more time. <laughs> and so I'm really happy to be here. Um, but yeah, so I, I have what I kind of joke is a very prototypical Korean American immigrant story. My grandfather immigrated to the United States in the mid 70s. Um, it's, you know, one of those he came with like just a few dollars in his pocket kind of stories and started working at a gas station and eventually like bought a gas station, bought a grocery store and blah, 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 and brought his wife, brought his four kids. Um, my dad is the oldest son. And so, um, yeah, so he, he, you know, carries, as we know, the oldest son carries a big responsibility for the family. Um, and then my dad, after being here for a few years, he enlisted in the U.S. military. He went back to Korea and met my mom and they got married and he brought her over. Um, so my dad was in the U.S. military when my brother was born um, in the South, where my dad was stationed. Um, and then the story goes... They were in Korea when my mom was pregnant with me um, as part of the U.S. military, and um, that's where I was born. So my family had already immigrated to the United States and become Americans before I was born. I was uh, born in Korea, but I came shortly after my 100 days birthday, so I was about four months old. And then I was raised in Cerritos my whole life. I went to the same like kindergarten through sixth grade, and then seventh through twelfth, I went to Whitney High School. Um, so you can all roll your eyes at me. Um, and then I went to UCLA and, and now Jerry, you can roll your eyes at me, except for that Jeopardy thing that happened the other day. I mean, look, I mean, people, I mean, we would have to give context on what type of school Whitney is, I guess, for, for those of you who don't know. And uh, yeah. we'll leave it, we'll leave it to our, our listeners to Google it themselves. And if you, if you have friends in, yeah. in the area, um, but you might be one of the very few people, Sarah, that who mm. were born American citizen in Korea, which is a fascinating, right? Because your father was in the military. He, he was in the military, but um, okay. So now I'm kind of hesitant to share this part because because okay. um, <laughs> like citizenship questions. But sure, um, there's ambiguity around whether or not being in the military at that time and for the length of time that he was like we're all american citizens we all we all have our sure. american passports and whatever but um like we're not my parents have different stories about how i became a citizen okay let's just That's put it fair. that way yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, but yeah but i think mm -hmm. it's yeah even though so when when the story goes i was born in korea and came when i was, I was 100 days old mm -hmm. yeah but it's not the stereotypical like you know because yeah. you were born mm -hmm. when your father was in the Already military American. serving yeah. the correct. So that's yeah. a fascinating angle that I don't, you know, even yeah. that I think helps us to frame the understanding mm -hmm. of who your father was, yeah. obviously. Mm -hmm. And and we have a lot of stories like that of the grandparents' generation coming here mm -hmm. in the 70s, but not enough. And, yeah. and in particular, 
we don't tell enough of those stories yeah. because yeah. even more so than our parents not wanting to share yeah. the challenging years or, you know, why do I want to share my, you know, Koseng story with you? Yeah. We, we did this for you, so don't ever worry about it. I think yeah. those feelings are even more heightened. Like yeah. my grandfather, when he was alive, like he didn't share war stories, right? Like yeah. I know he did some shit back in the day. They all did, <laughs> but they yeah. had to survive. Yeah. But either to protect us or because they deemed it's not necessary. Yeah. We don't, there's big gaps, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I met yeah. my grandfather when he was like in his 40s and 50s or mm-hmm. in his 50s. I don't know. Like to to yeah. me, his life started it when I met him. When you met him, and, yeah. And, and the first 50 yeah. years through occupation, through war, through yeah. crap is yeah. just like, oh, that's just grandpa. Yeah. So I, I, think, I, I think it's fascinating. But, it, you know, it also informs a lot of similar but very, very interesting story of how you, you know, navigated your way through your early years. Um, and the context of Cerritos mm-hmm. now, especially, <laughs> but even back then, yeah. not yes, technically an American suburb in the outskirts of LA County, but yeah. very diverse then, at least from very an Asian American perspective. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how, how in in your graduating class, what percentage were Asian American at Whitney? Gosh, okay, so I don't know the exact percentage, but several years ago for research, I um, I was looking at census records. And I think it was 47%, like in the 80s, Cerritos itself was 47% Asian American. And but I believe, of that subset, yeah. that self-selected into a test in school Magnet like Whitney, school. Yeah. correct. It is, was very Asian. Like, it skews higher because our parents- It skews much yeah. higher. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I heard, I heard that real estate agents placed advertisements in Korean newspapers that were published in Korea for houses in Cerritos because they knew that families in Korea who wanted to immigrate to the United States were looking specifically at Cerritos because mm-hmm. they wanted their kids to get into Whitney. Like that's yeah. how crazy it was. I look I yeah. uh I was one yeah. decision of my mom's away from going to Whitney myself, which is a oh, fun uh-huh. yeah. yeah. We might have been we, friends earlier. <laughs> we we may have been. Yeah. Um so I, I grew up in nearby Fullerton and yeah. um in, in the sixth grade um mm-hmm. I went to um, Hagwan or you know after school mm-hmm. academy yeah. in Cerritos okay. and the, the person who ran the academy is like why don't you you know we'll, we'll just like a practice test to see if mm. you know Jerry and his brother are you know if they can do it they thought about it and my parents said no we want to stay closer to home so mm. you know who, who knows how my life would have been yeah. differently if, if I became <laughs> that stereotypical Whitney kid myself <laughs> so let, let, let's yeah. let's go to UCLA then right so okay. you go to UCLA yeah. it is in the city that you grew up um, mm-hmm. there is obviously the population there is mm-hmm. diverse as well. There is ample, um, not only Asian Asian American representation in the student base, but in the academic pursuits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you chose Asian American studies as your major. Yeah. Um, was that what you went in with, or no, what did you no what did you idea. go in with, and, and what was the the pivot like? No idea. So, at like so many Korean American children, I was told that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I think my parents knew that I didn't have the aptitude to become a doctor. Um, so I was told I was going to be a lawyer. Um, and I went in knowing that I wanted to major in history because I just, I love to read. I love history and I love, um, yeah, I love learning about the past. So I went in, declared my major, and I had the fortune of having a professor who was Asian American. His name was Dr. Henry Yu, and he taught one of my history classes. And I don't know what compelled me, but for one of his assignments, um, I wrote, I think it was for his assignment, I interviewed my uncle and my uncle's like, like perspective on Korean politics. So 
um, Park Chung-hee, you know, one of the military dictators in Korea who became president. Um, I think I interviewed my uncle about that. And when my professor read my essay, he was like, hey, have you ever like considered taking Asian American studies classes? And I was like, what's that? And so that was my introduction to Asian American studies. I think it was my it either was my first or my second year. And I know I declared, I th- I'm pretty sure I declared like in my second year that I was going to double major in history and Asian American studies. Um, so I looked into it and I was like, oh, heck yeah, there's like this entire major just around Asian American stories and literature and sociology and psychology and all this stuff. And it was amazing to me because, and you know, we could talk about this more when we get to the literature part, but the only Asian people I had seen like in literature when I was younger were um, Jackie Robin in the year of the born Jackie Robinson. Um, and then um, Claudia Kishi, the Japanese American in the babysitters club series. And I, I remember wondering like, Hey, are there Korean people in children's books? And like, when I was younger, I didn't find any, no one had introduced me to them. They existed. They existed for sure. Cause I found them later. Um, but it didn't occur to me that like, Korean Americans could be in books, um, that we could be like storytellers, right? Even though like I had grown up like surrounded by Korean people, I was watching Korean dramas all the time. Some of them took place in the United States. Like, obviously I was very, very immersed in my Korean American culture, you know, like with HOT and like everything else in that era, which I still believe is the best era for Korean pop culture you're you're gonna get all the gen z people to write i know i know i know bts (laughs) it's all good it's all good i understand that but like we love bts people please don't write us no we do we do love bts (laughs) but like god hot chexkis like lula that's my jam um anyway so um so henry you introduced me to asian american studies and i started taking classes um i took a six week study program to Hawaii and learned about like sovereignty issues and um, the plantations and the mm. my, my, uh, labor migrations to Hawaii and, and how people were treated and segregated and things like that. So that really opened up my eyes um, to these incredible histories of struggle, of triumph that I had never heard before. Um, and of course, like all of the histories of like oppression, of incarceration and like legal exclusion with like the 1882 legal um, Chinese exclusion law and things like that. So when I um, started taking these classes, I was just blown away. And I knew that this was something that I wanted to continue studying. So I think it was like my junior year when some of my friends were starting to prepare to go to law school, right? Because you have to take the LSAT and stuff. And as I was watching my roommate, um, my roommate, Irene, start like figuring out which LSAT prep classes she was going to take. I was like, oh, I should probably be doing that too. Um, (laughs) And then I thought, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. Like, I think I want to, if I'm double majoring in history and Asian American studies, I think I want to be a history teacher, like a high school history teacher. Um, Have you heard of the book Lies My Teacher Told Me? No, I haven't. So it's, um, so it's a, it's a book that kind of like tells you about a lot of the things in his like in history that we did not learn in our official curriculum. So like about Japanese incarceration and about like Mexican immigration and and all these things that are like shameful to American history that we don't tend to talk about in our textbooks. Um, so I kind of wanted to be the kind of teacher that told those untold, suppressed, silent stories in high school classrooms. Um, so then I decided I was going to. Um, 
get my master's degree in Asian American studies so that I could, you know, be more prepared. And then I was going to go and get my education degree so that I could become a high school teacher. Well, um, so I, you know, then I graduated with my undergrad, um, double majored in history and Asian American studies. Um, and then I applied to the UCLA Asian American studies master's degree program and was very uh, thankful to get in. And so I was all set, you know, was like reading all these Korean history books, these Korean American history books and learning about, you know, our history and all this stuff. And it was really exciting and also really traumatizing because, even though I had known that like Japan had colonized Korea, even though I had known that Korea um, had fought, um, had, had had a civil war, I knew these things and yet to like start studying them and then to start studying like about mental health issues in Asian American families, um, about domestic violence in Asian American families and about all of the, and about the LA riots, which, you know, so many of us suffered and survived. That was, it was really, really hard. Um, and so what happened? So I don't, I don't remember exactly when, but I was, um, at a Borders bookstore because I'd always been a reader, loved reading. And I, I don't remember what I was doing there, but I walked into a children's, um, into the children's section and I found a picture book called Smoking Night written by a white woman named Eve Bunting. And I think she's still alive. Um, but she lived in Pasadena and, um, this picture book was, it was set during the LA riots. And so when I opened it and I started reading it and the protagonist is a ambiguously brown child, I think people read him as Latino. Um, and he, he talks about the Korean woman across the street named Mrs. Kim. So she's obviously Korean. She speaks in a language she doesn't really know. Um, and they're clearly like not friends. They just know each other. But of course, by the end of the story, like their cats find each other. So then they find each other. They become friends. I mean, if only the LA riots could be resolved so easily. Um, but I was really intrigued because this was the first time I saw a Korean character in a children's book. Um, but she was like the object, right? She was objectified by the protagonist. And so it made me wonder, wait, could there be a children's book about the LA riots, something that was so impactful to my family because my dad mm -hmm. owned a grocery store um, in Inglewood uh, in 1992. And so I started looking. I started looking to see if there were any other children's books about the LA riots, and there weren't. But when I did that search, I found other children's books that had Korean people in them, and a lot of them were written by Korean people. And I was like, oh my gosh, these books exist. Why didn't anyone tell me? Um, and so then I pivoted and, and I, you know, as I was talking with my professors at UCLA um, and I became interested in studying these books, um, they encouraged me. Uh, there was a professor, Dr. Clara Chu. She had a joint appointment in Asian American Studies and the Information Studies program at UCLA. And so mm -hmm. she became my thesis advisor um, and she encouraged me to take classes in the Information Studies program. So I started to, I took children's literature um, and other classes and started learning more about information studies or what we more broadly call library and information science as a discipline. So then I was like, oh, wait a minute, maybe I don't want to be a history teacher. Maybe I want to be a children's librarian. Um, I didn't have librarians who shared these stories with me when I was younger. But if I could be a librarian who knows that these stories exist and then shares them with children, with all children, not just Asian American children, but with all children, um, then I think that's what I want to do. So I wanted to double major then, double get a double master's degree in information studies and Asian American studies at UCLA.
So that was the plan. In steps my mother. <laughs> so, so my mom, um, you know, she went to Ihua in Korea. She's a very smart woman. Um, but at the time in Korea, uh, you could not be married and, and continue your education. Mm. So when my dad, this like new Amer- Korean American, right, came calling and wanted to marry her and bring her to the United States, she was like, all right, see ya. I'm out of here. So she um, did not finish her education at Ihua. Um, got married to my dad and then came to the U.S. So, um, so as I became more interested in like pursuing further graduate education, my mom was like, you know, I never finished college. You have to get a PhD. And I was like, but I don't need a PhD to become a children's librarian. I need a master's degree in library and information science to become a children's librarian. And she like, she, I think she understood this. Like, like I said, she's a very smart woman. She understood this, but all she could think was, I need my daughter to fulfill the dreams that I never got to finish. And so, and then my grandfather, my grandfather, you know, we're having this conversation together in his presence. And I was really close to my grandfather before he passed. And so he was like, Sarah, I never got to see my daughter finish college. I need you to get a PhD. (laughs) Man. But you started with, Sarah, let me put this in context. You started with? Uh, doctor first, and they said probably not. Law school maybe, and then they they see this daughter yeah. full of lawyer potential, saying, "I want to go study books or history." So yeah. of course they're gonna say, "Become the other doctor, right? The like get doctor, get a get a right. PhD, and at least that PhD. is yeah. is acceptable. acceptable, not ideal, yeah. but acceptable." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so when my grandfather stepped in, that was it. It was game over because I was so close with him. And so um, and the thing is, in my head, I was like, you know, I could get my PhD and I could get my master's degree in, in library science along the way. And then I could still be a children's librarian because <laughs> I'll still have that degree. Um, but, you know, so then that's uh, that's and, and Clara, Dr. Clara Chu also really wanted me to get a PhD. So that's how the conversation with my mom started, actually, because I. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have done this, but I mentioned to my mom that Dr. Clara Chu was encouraging me to get a PhD in library science. And she was like, oh my God, you have to do it then. So anyway, so that's how that started. So it's my fault for um, saying it, but you know, hey, what, like, we're glad yeah. you did. Yeah. And, and I am, I am too. Um, and I, I do tell my mom, like, you were right. Like, I'm, I'm glad that you made me do this. Um, it's the only thing I'll ever say to her about being right. <laughs> but um, yeah. So I applied to UCLA. I wanted to stay there and continue working with Clara. Um, but I also applied to other programs throughout the country. And um, and the thing is, like, there's something called intellectual inbreeding. If you get all of your degrees from the same institution, you're learning from the same people, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's not, like, a diversity of thought. Sure. And so they really encourage you to get your degrees from different institutions. So since I had already gotten my um, – I was already getting my UCLA um, – or my master's degree in Asian American Studies at UCLA – Everyone was like, you have to go somewhere else for your PhD, especially if you want to come back to UCLA and be a professor, like you have to have gone somewhere else to study. So then I was like, oh, my God, I have to move. Now, like I said, um, you know, same school from K to six, same school from seven to 12. And then I was at UCLA for six years. Um, And that was all within Los Angeles. Right. And so the Mm -hmm. thought of moving somewhere else terrified me. Um, And so when I got into Illinois, which at the time was ranked number one for children's literature in a library science program, I was like, I have to move to what? To where? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I visited the campus and um, 
when the during that trip, I well, as I was studying the the university, there wasn't a single person of color on the on the faculty in the Library and oh. Information Science program. So it's a, the the longest running PhD program in the country, number one ranked right in in different areas, and there wasn't a single person of color. Um, but because it was at a big research university, it's the flagship university for the University of Illinois. Um, there was a really, really strong Asian American studies program. And so I contacted um, someone there who did education, who had a joint appointment in education and um, met up with her when I visited the campus. And it was, I mean, the campus was so different and I made the mistake of going, I mean, I had no choice. I had to go in the spring after I was accepted, but it was cold. You know, I'm a Southern California girl. Um, It was cold. I think it had just snowed. Um, there was like maybe two Korean restaurants that I could see on campus. Um, but, you know, I, I went because my goal was to eventually come back and, and try to get a job at UCLA. And I, I think I got a really good education there. I had fantastic advisors. I had a really great dissertation committee. So I had two um, advisors within the, UC, uh, the library science program who are just really well respected around the world for studying children's and young adult literature. And then I had a professor from Asian American Studies, a different one, because the one who I had met with originally had left Illinois by then. Um, but I had a, a Korean American sociologist who, um, who I had taken a class with, and he was my third member. And then my fourth member was a Korean American anthropologist um, who was at Rochester at the time. So she was my fourth person. So it, it worked out in that sense that I had a really well, well-rounded committee and um formed a great community there with other Asian American graduate students, um, APOXO, the Asian Pacific American Graduate Student Organization. So uh, I was a graduate assistant at the UCLA or at the Illinois um, Asian American Studies program. So that was, that was really great to just like physically, you know, be in the space with Asian Americans all the time. Um, Yeah. And then I was, uh, on track to graduate in around 2008, 2009 during the recession. <laughs> mm. um, and there were not that many jobs available. So I applied to everything that seemed even remotely um, related to what I was doing. Um, it was at our conference, our academic conference, Association for Library Information Science Education, which is where we do our uh, interviews and stuff. And I had heard about St. Catherine University because um, it was uh, featured in, in a fellowship program that I did, and my friend had visited the campus for his portion of the program. So I had heard of it. I knew it was in Minnesota. And by then, I, you know, my, my dissertation was on representations of adopted Koreans in children's and young adult literature. And I'm not an adopted Korean. I'm now married to an adopted Korean. That's why my name is Sarah Park Dolan, not just Sarah Park. Why did you choose that topic? Why, why was that important for you? So when I was, so when I pivoted in my um, master's degree program from thinking about becoming a history teacher to studying Korean American children's books. So my master's thesis at UCLA was on Korean American children's um, picture books. And I had sort of these like categories of stories. And one of them was like immigration stories and uh, melting pot stories. And then I had like war and colonialism stories. And then I had a fourth category of Korean adoption stories. And I kind of was surprised to see to find so many books about Korean adoption because um, I had certainly not really been exposed to the topic very much in my childhood. Um, I, I went to school with at least one adopted Korean and we didn't really talk about it that much. Um, 
But in my master's degree program, I had a classmate who was an adopted Korean. So our program was two years long. I was there from 2002 to 2004. In the summer of 2003, um, my friend and I, the adopted Korean classmate and I, we went to Korea and she, this was, I don't know how many times she had been to Korea already, but she was conducting a birth search. And um, that summer, she finally, after so many tries, reconnected with her family. so, and, and it was, um, it was, there were a lot of things that she had been told by the agency that ended up not being true, which I know you've already heard about and discussed on this podcast before with your interview with Nathan. Um, but yeah, it was, it, I mean, even just like watching it as, as, as her friend, it was really, really traumatizing. Um, so here I am sort of like watching all of this happen with her she had become one of my closest friends in the program. And we were in Korea together that summer. Um, Meanwhile, I'm reading these children's books, right? Which are like, (laughs) my family is forever. And these very like happily ever after kind of stories where like our family was meant to be. And there was, you know, almost no discussion of birth families or white birth families um, place children for adoption. There was obviously like no discussion of gender issues, you know, um, poverty and, and all these things. Um, and so the disconnect between what I, you know, what my friend was experiencing and the disconnect with the children's literature was just like really profound. Um, so I finished my, my, my master's thesis. And when I went to Illinois, I thought, I'm just going to take my master's thesis and each section, you know, immigration, war, like adoption, et cetera, I'm just going to make it bigger. But my dissertation advisors really, they wanted me to take one of those topics and go very deep. So when you look at the immigration stories, the melting pot stories, and the war and colonialism stories, most of them were written by people who had either experienced it themselves, so they they were themselves immigrants from Korea to the United States, or like they were one generation removed. So for example, Francis Park and Ginger Park, they're sisters, and they write stories about their parents and their parents growing up in Korea or surviving the war or whatever, and they put that into a, a children's book. But when you look at the adoption stories, none of them were written by adopted Koreans. And that was really, really intriguing to me. So as I started studying that a little bit more and finding more children's books that featured Korean adoptees, and still none of them were written by adopted Koreans, I was like, what is going on with this? And then as I started looking into adoption research, um, I was finding the critique over and over again from adult adoptees that they did not appreciate being talked about and being talked over and not being interviewed themselves about their experiences. So for example, a lot of people who study adoption will ask adoptive parents, how did your children turn out? What do your children think about being adopted? What do your children think about being racially different? Instead of asking the adopted person, what do you think about being adopted? Or how are you, can you tell us about your experiences? So historically, that's how a lot of the adoption research has gone. Um, and I mean, today it's, it's shifting because adopt, adoptees have grown up and become adults and a lot of them are professors themselves or they're journalists or what have you. And so they're really... Um, especially now with social media, um, are really like speaking out, you know, um, on their own. So it's been very exciting to see that. But as I was reading these criticisms about um, how they were being talked about and not talked to, um, and I was seeing that happen in children's books, um, I thought this is really, really interesting. And, you know, I was worried, though, that I didn't want 
to be yet another outsider, another non-adopted person who is studying adoption um, and not like investing into the community, not um, and, and doing it only for the sake of my dissertation. Right. And so one of the things that I did to sort of get ready, I guess, was um, I looked for Korean culture camps um, and I. I just started emailing and saying, hey, can I come and just like spend time with you? So not formal research. Like I wasn't interviewing anyone. I wasn't, you know, being anthropological about it or anything. Um, and there was a camp in Minnesota called Camp Kimchi that said, hey, do you want to come and like be your Korean culture teacher? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'll come and be, be your Korean culture teacher. So I, I came, I think I came either two or three summers in a row. Um, and I, I just, it was just, it was great to like be surrounded by um, mm. families and to to learn more about like the everyday conversations that they were having and, and the things that they cared about and um, and it you know I, I made really good friends through that camp like the you know they they had me room in the hotel with a woman named Brooke Newmaster who taught the Korean dance and drumming classes she's an you should talk to her I'll introduce you to her she's um, she's an adopted Korean whose mom really encouraged her to explore Korean culture. And so she became a professional Korean uh, dancer and drummer. And so Whoa. she now runs like a Korean dance and drumming class. And my daughter goes to that. Oh, class cool. Right yeah. So it's just like so nice to see it like come full circle. I remember like the first time like Brooke came up to me when my daughter was dancing and she was like, this is the dream like for our kids to like, you know, and, and I was just like in tears seeing that like my friendship with Brooke that started in like 2005 or something. And, and now, you know, yeah. 16 years later, my daughter is taking classes with Brooke. So it's um, so that's been really nice, but yeah. So then Brooke has become a lifelong friend and there are other adopted Koreans um, who I met when they were like 10 years old and now they're like grownups. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, so I, I had already had this relationship with Minnesota um, as well as I was like, as, as I began to study when I decided that this was going to be my dissertation topic and I was going to try to be as respectful as I could as an outsider and be very mindful of not, um, of just t doing my dissertation and taking off and, and not like respecting the community. Um, I began to, uh, befriend other adopted Koreans, um, and other people who study Korean adoption. And a lot of them are located here in Minnesota because this is the epicenter of transracial adoption. Um, so Kim Park Nelson, J. Ron Kim, Hee-Won Lee, uh, Rich Lee, who's like me, not an adopted Korean, um, an immigrant Korean-American who studies Korean adoption. So I had already like become friends with a lot of these people. So I knew that they were here in Minnesota. So St. Catherine University, when I was at that conference, Elise, and at that time, I didn't know that St. Kate's was hiring, um, but I was in the elevator this is why you should always talk to people. So I saw a woman who um, had a St. Kate's, you know, the institution name on her name badge. And I was like, oh, St. Catherine University, that's in Minnesota. Like, I love Minnesota. I just recently visited and blah, 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 and whatever. And I was like, it's too bad you're not hiring. And she was like, oh, but we are. And I was like, what? And so she handed me the job ad because she was obviously carrying it up, carrying it around. And she said, yeah, we just got approved. And so we weren't able to, you know, like advertise that we were hiring before coming to this conference. And I looked at the job ad and it was like, we're looking for someone who could teach technology classes. And I was like, Dang it. <laughs> and she said, but if we can find someone who's a good fit, then we'll hire that person. And I said, Very okay. Cool. Yeah. And they, um, there was another woman in the program who was the chair who taught most of the children's literature courses. And she was, she had her eye on retirement. 
And so they, they kind of thought like, if we could get someone who could teach children's literature too, then like maybe we'll hire that person instead of a technology person. So long story short, it worked out. I was so thankful to get this job at the height of the recession. Um, and also in a city that I wanted, that I, I was familiar with, had friends in, like didn't mind living in, except for it's like really, really cold here in the winter. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what brought me. There's so many things that you touched on that, probably deserve conversations of their own. Um, a few things that stand out to me, I think, is this picture we have of the librarian, the American librarian. Cool. And I'm guessing some of you have a visual in your head right now mm-hmm. of like Betty Crocker, like old <laughs> white, right? Old white woman who is that nurturing, caring. She's mm-hmm. the, you know, the caretaker of your elementary yeah. school or local library. Yeah. Because that's the image that we were not only raised with, but reinforced through yep. things and yeah. stories, right? Yeah. Like, you know, absolutely. she is the storyteller of the community and therefore mm-hmm. she curates and, you know, mm-hmm. but that's not my story. And and so there's, yeah. it, it's bad enough that we don't have enough books written for us by us. Mm-hmm. Sure, books about us, but as you mentioned, those don't really yeah. count. Mm-hmm. And, and so for us by us, no, but then even if there are, mm-hmm. the people whose job it is to share those stories mm-hmm. within the context of the child's experience mm-hmm. didn't exist, right? So yeah. content is key. Mm-hmm. Context yeah. is necessary for the content to matter, right? So yeah. this is sort of like the representation versus what do you do with the platform that you have? So like, sure, it's cool that Asian Americans are visible in a lot of different things, mm-hmm. but- if you don't do anything with it to advance yeah. your people or to help yeah. your people, or God forbid, yeah. do things to hurt your people, as we yeah. know some people do today, like, then what the heck? So yeah. I, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, on, on the topic of asking the, what I would presume to be, you know, white parents mm-hmm. of Asian adopted children, mm-hmm. how is your kid doing? Yeah. Like, it's not just the parent son power paradigm. It's yeah. asking somebody else to really, um, tell our story from their perspective of right. somebody who quote unquote rescued this poor child from this country that right. they only have this life because of my generosity. And, right. and whether that was genuine or who knows why yeah. parents really adopt. And, you know, some, yeah. we hear some good stories, we hear some bad stories, but, yeah. and, but, but the, the thing that really stuck out to me was your observation and my observation too, of this, over-indexing of storytellers in our community now that Mm -hmm. seem to be from the adopted generation. Mm -hmm. So authors and Mm -hmm. journalists, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. not scientific because I haven't studied it, (laughs) but Uh I I, I get the sense that they have a desire to want to storytell more Yeah, because they haven't, they are now creating the platform and the avenues to tell their stories as we are doing here on this podcast to say, I wasn't allowed to, I didn't know we could, Mm -hmm. I didn't even know this was a thing. And now I'm grown and we realize you can do whatever the hell you want. Right. Like I'm going to tell my own story. And and so I I think that's critically, critically important. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember, so you you know, Heli as well. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So she was the very first ever Korean American author that I knew existed. And, yep. and so, 
you know, she wrote her book, Still Life with Rice, when we were in college. And so, you know, I was uh, president of our KSA at the time. So I forget exactly what the introduction point was, but I remember reaching and I was like, we have to have you because I yeah. think it's important. And, you know, so we, we had a packed house, you know, she talked about her book and, um, you know, years later, I, I, we crossed paths again two years ago, uh, thanks to NetCal. And I shared with her that story and I was like, look, like from your perspective, I don't know how much of it was you trying to promote your book, which is what authors need to do, but like that was very impactful for me and a lot of my friends in that room because, dude, you're like one of us. You're like an older yeah. sister writing about yeah. us for us, and, yeah. and 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 so it's not just in. We talk a lot about representation in visual media, which mm-hmm. is important. Um, yeah, but three year olds don't mm-hmm. watch a lot of TV. They start. They're, they're, they they're, no, maybe yeah. right now yeah. in in, in yeah. quarantine world, watch yeah. everything you can. But yeah. it, it, in general, right? Like they are book sponges. Yeah. And and so that I think is more important than TV almost because yeah. if you can get it right mm-hmm. when they're sponging at ages three, four, and five, yeah. then they grow up with a sense of belonging and confidence that may not yeah. need to be so adjusted into their teens when they the TV yeah. comes into play, right? So, yeah. yeah. And, and so, <laughs> I mean, this is sort of yeah. like, you know, are you putting a Band-Aid on things or are you going to do surgery, right? Like, and then yeah. so I think trying to not fix, but to, and again, I, I say this often, but, you know, this is not to silence any voice that already exists. This is to add to the voice that I think is yeah. necessary to tell our versions of the story. You know, yeah. I am not, nor I will be the, I am not the first, nor I ever plan to be the last Asian American yeah. podcaster. Yeah. I hope I'm not. Yeah. But I'm yeah. trying to tell a story that I wanted to hear. So I ask different questions and other folks yeah. have different, which is great. And so, and, and it's the same thing with children's books. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't ever be the question of, aren't there enough of yeah. you or enough of your yeah. books? Right? Oh man, I have so many stories about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we don't ask that about, you know, let's, let's be blunt. We don't ask that about like mainstream or like, you know, that's our, no. you know, cover word for white authors. We never say right. like, oh, aren't there, why, why another, you know, talking rabbit? Yeah. No, I don't know, right? Like, yeah. talk rabbits are cool, but we, if you don't, if you cannot ask that person of somebody else, then you cannot ask that. And this is not just yeah. Asian; it's all diversity, right? right? Like, yeah. aren't there enough of X? And right. it's like, no. We're like, yes, yeah. Asian American, maybe twelve yeah. percent of the population, but or five percent of the yeah. you know the national population, but we're third of the world, bro. So, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, minority is a right. relative term in yeah. a small part it's of the world. Weird. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's so cool that you do what you do, because it's not just the studying of, but since your time at St. Catharines, you've done a boatload of work, um, officially and unofficially, paid and unpaid, just your brand, your life, your your thing, your ethos is Mm -hmm. now not only the creation of diverse literature, the study of of diverse literature, but also the curating of a community of those people who created and then doing things to give them as big of a platform as a microphone to scream at literally everybody saying we need more of this because the people who actually need to hear it have never realized that that is what was missing in their lives. You ask anybody our age what books you grew up reading. And as parents, as you and I are now, 
many parents are struggling with. Oh, these are classic American books that we grew up with, and therefore, should we not right? Well, no shit, right? So, obviously, I have a podcast that talks about Asian American identity, identity. So, like, yeah, that stuff is important. So, you know, it's like, hey, I don't care that it was something that everybody grew up with. Like, let's revisit that story and and really determine if that's something we want to expose our children to. And so, so you you sort of or on both I don't it's not binary but you know you have this passion for telling adoptee stories which along the same veins of stories never allowed to be told mm-hmm. and then on the children's side of children get to don't ever get to decide what they read right they get mm-hmm. they get read to and then mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a yeah. institutional problem but so you you have this passion for children's literature um how do you I guess we know now why it, it's it's your entire lived in experience of, of having that um what what excites you about that? And like, how do you have, you know, you do a lot and <laughs> it, it's true. Um, and I'll tell the, I'll, I'll tell the audience too. Um, so Dear Asian Americans podcast, you know, six weeks ago in, in March, um, last May for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, I did a much, much less intense version of just photos and storytelling via Instagram. And so um, Sarah was gracious enough to help with that project. And so when, I was getting ready to launch the podcast. I had reached out to those people who had volunteered their time last year. And I said, hey, I'm getting to do this. Um, if and when you have time, would love for you to consider coming on, aud- audibly telling your story. Um, you gave me like 30 names. And, <laughs> then you said, and then you said, this is my short list. But if ever you want to talk to anybody, I am happy to. And like, I, I, I stopped when I got that email because it's emotional right because i didn't know 80 percent of the names mm. but so one it's even as the guy who cares enough to start this that is my blind spot mm. so first it was holy shit there's a lot of people and this is just the tip of the iceberg but there's more of course <laughs> i can give you more, there's more. Yeah. But here, yeah here's the thing that got me the most i was like okay like this is the kind of person sarah is and this is the kind of community she's built because I'm a big believer in growing the pie. And if mm-hmm. there ever was a pie that needed to be grown, it's the storytelling pie. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. It's not about making money. Yeah. It's not about, you know, being on some list. It's if your book changes one kid's life, then kudos yeah. to you. Yeah. And then so write, you know, write for the one kid. And, and so yeah. if, if you're listening right now and you're in, in the content world, whether you're writing a book or write, Get over yourself and stop chasing vanity metrics. Nobody, don't, you know, look, it's so easy to look at that, right? Like, I mean, podcast is a digital medium, which means it's data galore. And so I can sit there lamenting about, you know, how do I hack this to get more listens or market? I get letters or messages from friends and strangers like saying that episode, that hit me hard. And so that's one person who... And it's not in my story. I just sit here and ask questions, right? So, but but it's, but it's through the conversations that we have that impact it. So, books, especially at the formative years of preschool and, and those early years, I think I know the answer. But like, tell us about why this is your, you know, your your life now. Why children's yeah. books and why adopt these stories? Yeah. So, I mean, so I have so many thoughts about all the things that you said and. 
I mean, one of them is you talked about how when we think of a librarian, we think we think typically of like this old white lady. She probably has a bun. She's wearing a cardigan. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, like right now, 87 percent of um, America's librarians report being white. And so that's still a lot. That's still a lot. And of course, it's regional. Right. Like when I was at UCLA in the um, the taking classes there, my classrooms, my, my classmates were much more diverse than my classrooms at the University of Illinois. Um, my classrooms now, sometimes at St. Kate's, I'm the only person of color in the classroom, you know, and I'm, I'm the one at the front of the room. But that means that I'm preparing um, these cohorts of mostly white women to go out and, and share books with young readers and their, their classrooms or their um, library patrons are going to look very different from who they are. And I, over time, I have been really, really gratified to have um, an increasing percentage of my students who, even as they remain mostly white women, to be increasingly aware of their whiteness and of their privilege and of their um, responsibility and all the extra learning they have to do um, in order to prepare themselves to share more diverse stories with all readers. So whether or not they are, I have students who are planning to become children's librarians in very rural areas because that's the lifestyle that they prefer. And they are just as committed to sharing diverse books with what is likely to be an all white community um, as are my students who are working in libraries like in the middle of Minneapolis. Um, and so I'm, we have fantastic students and I'm like so thankful for that. Um, I just want to share really quick, like, you know, you said something about context, these, you know, a lot of, it's a, a lot of times it's white people who are sharing these diverse stories without really knowing the context, right? And so one of the things that I have my students do in, in our class um, is, you know, I have my reading list of 40 or whatever books that we're reading a semester and students have to prepare presentations on two of the books. And part of that includes um, providing the sociopolitical context. And so if they are, if, if we're reading a book such as um, A Different Pond by Bao Fi and illustrated by T. Bowie, who I, I think were named on that mega list that I gave you of people to interview. <laughs> um, but, you know, that book has to do with memories of the American war in Vietnam, about a brother who never came home about poverty, about a father and son spending time together fishing. And so um, my students then would be expected to provide some context of the American war in Vietnam, of Vietnamese, like their patterns of immigration to the United mm -hmm. States, of sort of like demographic information about where do they tend to reside. A lot of them tend to reside in Minnesota, in Fresno, mm -hmm. in you know, um, Garden Grove, et cetera. Right. So, the assignment is meant to provide them. So one student has the responsibility of curating all that information and collecting all of that information and presenting it to the classmates. So then everyone in the class has this like sociopolitical context through which to understand the picture book that we just read together. Um, so I, I take that very seriously. I make sure that my students do a robust job on that and they have been phenomenal with it. And so I'm very thankful that my students work hard to understand the context in which these stories happen, especially like I can't tell you how many times I've had a student say, I did not know that our country incarcerated 120,000 Japanese people. I did not know, you know, like I did not know that we had so many adopted people. I did not know the background of why we've, Korea has sent out more than 200,000 adopted children. Like 
you know, if, if they understand that, then they have, um, they have a better context through which to understand these books. Right. right. So, so that's what I wanted to say about the librarian and the image and how do, how do we help all these white people tell our stories? Um, but in terms of why I do what I do, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like that aha moment that I had when I was in graduate school where I was like, I, no one shared these books with me. And I want to make sure that other people are sharing these books with all children. So if I can't do that as a children's librarian, then I want my life's work to be preparing my students who are prepared, who are working to be children's librarians so that they will go out and do this and they will do it well. Um, and, and it's not even just at the librarian level, because at this level, the books already exist, right? Like we have to go back. We have to go back to the creation of the books. Yep. Like, I mean, there are so many places at which we can make an intervention, right? The librarian one is like the last one because that's right before the book gets to the child. Uh-huh. But even before that, there's like reviewing a book, right? Um, uh-huh. Like a, a, a good or bad review could have a huge impact on a book, right? And even before that, when the book is being produced, right? Like I, you know, publishers have sent me books and asked me, what do you think of this book? Like, what, what do you think of the character? What do you think of, like, the Korean content of this book? So it's, it's called a content expert or, like, a consultant or a sensitivity read. Like, there's different names for it. But they'll basically hire, like, content experts to vet the book. And they'll do this even in the cases where the author is also a Korean-American person, mm-hmm. um, just to get, like, another opinion. Um, I'll just tell you, like, and I'm pretty open about this, but I used to do this for white writers who are writing, like, Asian-American stories. Um, and then at one point I decided I don't want to do that anymore. Um, I will do it for fellow Asian American writers who, um, want to make sure that they're getting things right. Um, cause we all have different lenses through which we see things, but I won't do it for white people anymore. Um, why not? Because I, I feel like the <laughs> incremental damage control mm-hmm. is yeah. more opportunistic of somebody who doesn't understand where we come from than a slight tweak yeah. of somebody who does. Yeah, it's that. And also, like, we live in a capitalist society. I am not about helping white people make money off of our stories, right? Like, if we're, yeah, like, I, I would rather spend my time and energy helping people of color and indigenous people on their craft than a white person who probably has more access and privilege. I don't you know if that's going to come through, but that, we, you can clap on Zoom with the reaction. So, and, and thumbs up too. Oh my gosh! Okay, yeah. So, um, so I think a, a year or two ago, I decided that you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm going to spend any of my time and energy doing these so-called sensitivity reads, then I'm going to do it for people of color and indigenous writers. Um, and so that's almost exclusively what I've done over the past few years. So I'm involved with. Um, the Loft Literary Center uh, here in Minnesota. And we started a program called Mirrors and Windows a couple of years ago. Mirrors and Windows, the concept um, by Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who's just a, a huge like giant in our field. But she, um, she popularized this concept that children need mirrors through which to see their own experiences. And they also seem, need to see out of windows to see other people's experiences. So we named this program after her. And every year we have 12 fellows, 12 emerging writers who have fewer than two books published in whatever uh, genre or reading level. And we help them to work on their craft and to learn more about the children's lit publishing industry with the goal of helping them break into publishing. Um, so that's really like where my passion is now. Um, I want to help people who want to break into publishing to do that, 
because like you said, there's room for all of our stories and there's a need for all of our stories too. So that's, that's one example of like this, like really um, structured way that I'm, I'm doing that. Um, another, How do you scale that? Because there are, I would say a growing at, at various stages of uh, taking that leap. I sense through observation and conversation, more people, myself included, having more confidence and desire to want to create work that is reflective of our unique experience, Mm -hmm. because we have the ability to tell that story in a way that isn't being done today. Um, when, When you talk about inspiring people to get into the publishing game and giving them the right tools to do so, um, where does somebody get started if they're like, I've had a crazy, like, look, I genuinely believe every one of the conversations I've had on this show and now we're north of 30 can be a book in and of itself. Everybody's oh, yeah. story deserves yeah. it, right? Mm-hmm. But how do we how do we encourage and inspire people to take that leap? One, to believe that your story matters, number one, not just okay. because you're sitting on a podcast, but to write it down and memorialize it. Two, yes, and as a sidebar, um, when all this shit settles down, go walk through a Barnes and Noble and see the amount of ridiculous books that people write and that get, make it yeah. to the shelves through multiple yeah. layers of checks and balances. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. that inspired me so much because I'm like, if these mofos can write this shit and make money, why yeah. am I not doing it? Because my story is yeah. better. Yeah. And, and so I hope that more people <laughs> listening just, you know, start to yeah. believe in yourself and silence yeah. the negative self-talk and your yeah. story matters. And look, we have money. We have mm-hmm dollars we have yeah. power to influence yeah, what gets read yeah. so yeah. let's support the people in our community who are yeah. sharing our own stories and that starts with books that starts with yeah. you know buying taking a chance on an unknown asian american sister brother author yeah. buying their yeah. stuff and not yeah. giving fisher price more money than they know what to do with right <laughs> yeah. and, and and so i i am just curious on like how what what is what is the first step that people can do if they are interested in writing a story, whether at the children's level or at a YA level or anything where it's my story needs to be told. Yeah. They need to read. They need to read what's already out there. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone and they were like, yeah, this story, you know, needs to be told and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, actually, there's already something out there like that. Mm. Um, And so just knowing what is already, and that's not to say that like, we don't need more, for example, there's a ton of immigration stories. There's so many picture books about Asians immigrating to the United States. And that's all well and good. You know, like I said, we need more stories about everything, but if that becomes the dominating single story um, about Asian people, then like we're the perpetual foreigners, right? Mm -hmm. And so we need a lot more stories about a lot of things. And if you're going to write an immigration story, because that is truly your story, then what about your story is like distinct, you know, and like, what is the arc of your story that is distinct from someone else's? And so the first thing I would say to anyone who wants to write their story is to, well, I mean, obviously you need to like start writing it down, but you have to read widely what's out there for the age level and or the genre that you're trying to break into, because you want to make sure that you know how to talk about your story in the context of other stories that already exist. So, um, and then 
like if if you follow sort of like the the um, recommended path of publishing, then like you're going to write your story, you're going to go to a few conferences, you're going to uh, contract an agent, and the agent is going to help you to like you know contract a publisher. But when you contract an agent, you have to have a good pitch, right? And so you have to like pitch your story, and part of that pitch is to say my story is like a, a, a cross between this one and this one, but it's different because of this. And so you have to say it in a, in a very efficient way that's going to like catch people's attention. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why like you have to know what, what else is out there because you have to be able to say what it's like and what and how it is distinct from someone else. Um, there are a lot of resources to, to learn how to write for children um, and, you know, from, from books and websites and webinars to conferences, um, like writing groups are really, really important to, to have uh, writing groups that you can trust. So I've, um, I have friends who have been unhelpful writing groups because they're in a writing group of people who have no understanding of Asian America. And so they don't give good feedback, right. About, um, about a book. So having, um, a trusted writing group is really, really important. Um, another thing I would recommend for people is to go to author illustrator book events. So right now it's kind of impossible to go in person, <laughs> but um, for example, the Loft Literary Center is holding our annual literature fest online and everything is free. So if you go to the Loft Literary Center on Facebook, you can see the schedule of author um, chats that are going on. So um, talking or hearing from authors and illustrators who have already published um, hearing them talk about their craft, their process, how they broke into publishing, what struggles they've had. All of that is phenomenally important to your growth as a writer, too, because they might say something that you're struggling with or they might give you an idea that you hadn't thought of before. Um, and you might meet fellow writers at these events. You know, it's it's just really, really important to start being part of a writing community. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the things that I would say. And then, like, I also recommend reading the writings of scholars to who um, who have a critical take, like a, and I don't mean critical, like we're criticizing and saying it's bad, but I mean like who really interpret and analyze and evaluate the writings that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, so if you follow Viet Nguyen, the author of The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer, um, if you follow him on Twitter, I mean, he just has these gems of sayings. Like one of the tweets he said was, um, don't interpret yourself. Don't, don't translate. Don't, don't, you know, don't write as if for a white gaze, don't explain your culture, you know, just write, write from the heart. Um, and so like, like, you know, maybe that non Vietnamese reader is going to have a little bit more of a imagination leap that they're going to have to take in order to under, understand the story. But maybe for a Vietnamese reader, this story is just going to like punch you right where he wants yeah. it to, because he wrote the story for you. He wrote it so efficiently and so masterfully that like it, you don't need to translate or spend any more words explaining your story. It, it just like, you know, you just get it. Um, so yeah, reading the writings of people like Viet Nguyen, Jennifer Ho, Timothy Yu, all these scholars of Asian American literature, I think can also help us to understand sort of like a critical context in which a lot of these stories exist. What you mentioned though is something that as many entrepreneurs or people who start projects, you know, the term total addressable market becomes a big thing, right? Like how, what is, what, who is your target demographic? Mm -hmm. And so we have a tendency of printing it up, you know, dumbing it down, whatever euphemism you want to say to make it as broadly appeal as possible. But then you end up with the product, whether it's a book or a thing that doesn't 
mean anything to anybody. So yeah. this goes back to the saying of, you know, if you don't, if you don't stand for something, you don't stand for anything. Yeah. Or if you don't have a target listener, target reader, then you don't have anything. Yeah. And then yeah. so, you know, that, that's such a great insight because you don't have to write for everybody. No. And, and you know, and for, for people who are wondering, like, well, then who the hell I write for? Write for yourself. Write right? For yourself, yeah. write, write the story you want to read right now. And also write the story that you want your kids to read. Because they're growing up looking a lot like you. We don't, you know, we're not, we're not going to change skin tones or hair color or eye color in one generation. Yeah. So, and for, for as, unfortunately, as we can foresee, we're not going to get treated very differently or your kids aren't going to get very treated any better margin, mm-hmm. like significantly better in this, right now. in this country yeah. in the next 30 years. So write for them, right? Write so that we yeah. can get, we can inspire them to feel confident and not ashamed of who they are because that doesn't change. Yes, yeah. you're American. Have those, you know, um, things that make you proud and, and have those patriotic values. But at the same time, don't never in, in a million years, do not equip your children with the right tones of cultural identity and how to react to certain things that will unfortunately, inevitably happen their way. And if it doesn't, great. I hope people never get racism done. That's my genuine hope. But you don't raise your kids without any sort of cultural context, hoping that that's the case. It's quite the opposite. You have to prepare for the worst and to build such a confident, prideful, healthy pride of say, this is my background. I understand that we might be a little bit different, but and 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 I think that's so powerful because what then happens, especially at that you know three, four, five age level, is parents talk to other friends and they recommend books. Yep. Um, I I know you you have a I'll call it a habit, Sarah, but you you <laughs> you you have your Sarah Park Dolan Christmas book of the year, right? And it's <laughs> you you spread it out widely, and it's yeah. awesome on a number of different fronts yeah. because one, you are literally putting dollars in pockets of creators that look like me and you, which then allows them to create even more but two that might be the only time or that might be an introduction into what might be their first foray into diverse children's literature yeah 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 and and so you know it's i you know we've given away copies of helena's books on the show here it's important that we do that um geez if you read that and you don't cry man like it's a touching story but you know and, and even in her case like you don't need to go to school to write books. You don't need a major in children's yeah. library. She's a yeah. lawyer by trade that woke up one day and said, my story matters and I have a knack yeah. for this. So look, yeah. wh- wherever you are in life, like it doesn't, and you don't need uh, any of these household name. You don't need the validation of a large publishing house to tell you that your story matters. I'll tell you right now, your story matters. And story even matters. if it's chicken scratch, even if it's in a form of a tweet, even if it's in <laughs> anything, just create and don't yeah. be your own judge, right? You don't know how many people's lives you will change or at least your life will change by going through the catharsis of just putting it out there into the universe. And, and so, you know, yeah. there's beauty in writing things down and never pressing send, right? Because it's the process of expression and whether it is ever, what is ever publicly consumed or not, that doesn't really matter um and there are a lot of um 
platforms too, right? Like your Instagram story and there's like self-publishing platforms that a lot of people can take advantage of. I mean, if you get published by the big five, right? Good for you. Um, you will have probably more marketing dollars supporting you in that. Um, but if you get published by a slightly smaller press, then maybe you're going to get more individualized attention because they have a smaller list. So there's pros mm -hmm. and cons to sure. the different ways that you publish. But, you know, we live in an era now of social media. And if you have the time and the energy, like Rita Primer on how to market yourself and brand yourself, um, and then use social media to get your story out there. Um, there are a lot of people who began by self-publishing. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who began by writing um, work for hire. And so these are stories that like a publisher comes up with, like sort of a formulaic, you know, maybe mm. a series or something. Um, and that's how you break in because you write, you write well for that. And then you can come up with your own story. So maybe there's going to be a step before you write your own story, right? You, you write these work for hire things first. So there are multiple ways to break in. But I mean, I think what you say, what you're saying about like really believing in yourself, like that is the, that is, that is real. Like you have to believe in yourself and know that your story is important um, and, and write it down and yeah. share it. Yeah. And, and some of you might be thinking writing for a living is such a privileged thing to say, right? Yeah. Because it is, it is. The, yeah. the, the ability for people to read for a living, write for a living, review books. Those are well outside the wildest imagination of a lot of our listeners and just even other people that are like, that's sure says you in your whatever, right? Fancy ivory tower. Yeah. But you don't need to dedicate 80 hours a week to this, right? Yeah. Everybody look right now we're, we're everybody's, you know, staying at home. Florida's opening their beaches tonight. You know, I, I oh, wish God. them, I Pray wish them luck. <laughs> but if you're in Florida, you're at the beach listening to this. If you're not, you're at home and you have time. And mm -hmm. grieve, grieve at your own pace, but yeah. find the extra time. You know, Amazon might not be shipping books out at the fastest speed, but no, go but download a book. Publishers and, or yes, sorry, don't. <laughs> ooh, I said the A word. Um, well, well, they're not open right now. Well, find find the way, right? Do um, yeah. go get the audio book. Go go figure out yeah. a way to put. You know, um, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, talk about you know. Uh, this is a time to build a new skill. This is a time, blah, blah, blah. I get it. There's a lot of extra time, but you know what? Like do the things that are like number 20 on your list in a normal day. The yeah. things that if you don't do it now, you're never going to give yourself an excuse to do because life will get back to normal-ish yeah. at some point. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, and, and re, it doesn't matter what, I guess, uh, you don't need to read the perfect Asian American book because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Just like we're not no. a monolith, there's no monolithic no. one representation yeah. of this is the Asian American book, right? So, right, right. Um, yeah. sure, there there are um, you know classic books that I think tell our story more. But look, like I said, you're a 15 year old kid that has a different experience than me. Your story yeah. matters much as yeah. somebody who's done yeah. a chronicling of 40 years of other people's stories. Yeah. Um, but read and read more and read maybe for, you know, some other ones that are not like yours. And um, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do here on this show, right? Like we don't want 40 Korean American dudes to move here at age eight to LA because that's 40 <laughs> times of my story. And that's, you know, and, and so collect other people's stories, appreciate all that the world is, is to give you. Um, is there a book that you would suggest or what book are you giving away for this 
Christmas. Oh, I know it's April. April, yeah. Well, actually, no, let's take it back. <laughs> let, 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 let's give you an easy one. What did you buy for people the last two years? Okay, so the last couple of years, um, gosh, I bought, I I know that one of the years we bought Drawn Together by Min mm-hmm. Lei. It's written by Min Lei and illustrated by Dan Santat. And um, we also bought Let Me Finish, which is by Min Lei. Um, and illustrated by Isabel Rokas, I think is her last name. But um, Min is a good friend of mine. And so he was really generous. Like I shipped the books to his house and sent him a list of names. Whoa. And he personalized every single book and then sent them back to me. And then we redistributed them for um, birthday and Christmas presents. And so that's one thing that we do um, as a general practice in our house. Um, every time that there's a birthday present, like I don't remember the last time I bought a toy for a kid for birthday. Um, we always buy children's books. So I, you know, in my job, one of the perks um, is that I get to go to these conferences where a lot of children's literatures, literature writers and illustrators are. So the National Council for Teachers of English or American Library Association, um, I'm planning a conference that I'm crossing my fingers in October here in Minnesota that will not be canceled, um, for which we have a fantastic lineup of authors and illustrators coming. So I will literally like, this is the nerd in me coming out. I have a spreadsheet of all the kids that we buy presents for, for their birthdays and Christmases. And um, I write down which books I buy for them for which occasion, because I have accidentally sent two signed (laughs) copies of a different pond to my best friend's son. <laughs> and so he wrote me a very nice note saying, um, thank you for sending me a different pond again. But, but this is the second time you've done it. <laughs> I donated it to my school library. <laughs> so now I have a spreadsheet. But um, yeah, so the another one that we recently started um, gifting is The Diary of a Nice Princess by Christina Suntrenbat. Uh, she's a Thai-American writer who publishes like 50,000 books a year. It's pretty amazing. She's like very, very prolific. Um, so I just finished reading her novel, A Wish in the Dark. I have it right here. It's um, sort of a Les Miserables inspired fantasy set in Thailand. And it is beautiful. It is so beautiful. Um, but she has these like early reader chapter books called Diary of a Nice Princess. Um, if your kids like Frozen, they'll really like this book. Um, and so as my daughter has like started to get older, she's six years old now. Um, you know, this Christina's book is the first like non-picture book that we have gifted mm-hmm. to other people. Um, Magic Ramen by Andrea Wang is another picture book that we've been gifting uh, to friends for, for birthdays and stuff. It's a, the story of the guy who invented instant ramen. Um, and so it's, it's fantastic. Like it, you know, there's a lot in there about perseverance because he kept messing up. Well, I don't want to say he kept messing up. He kept not achieving his goal. And so he had to try over and over again with different consistencies and different like oils and, you know, this and that in order to, um, to make instant ramen. So that's another book that we've been, um, uh, gifting to people. Um, but I also wanted to share a story about, um, cause you know, we talk about how things were so different when we were young and how they are now, right? Like, um, I was 23 years old, I believe the first, well, I mean, I met Healy Lee also, um, at conferences and she came to, I think it, I'm pretty sure it was Dr. Gary Hong, um, was teaching like a politics in Korea class and he invited her to come and speak. And so she came like to my very intimate, you know, lecture. It was like, you know, you're so close to this person who wrote this book that you love. Um, so she was the first Korean American author that I had met too. And even then it didn't occur to me that 
there could be Korean American people writing for children. Like, wow, there's a Korean American writing for adults, but it didn't occur to me that there could be Korean people writing for children. Um, so then when I was in graduate school and pivoting to starting to study Korean American children's books, in 2002, two Korean Americans won big awards in my field. Hmm. Linda Sue Park won the John Newbery Medal, which is, you know, the gold medal that we remember from the books when we were younger. That's like, that basically says this was the best book that was published in the United States. So Linda Sue Park won... Um, the John Newbery Medal for a Single Shard in 2002. It's set in, I believe, 12th century Korea. And this is uh, Mm. the um, cover of the picture of the paperback. Um, And then Anna, her name is A-N, last name N-A, and then she goes by Anna. She wrote a a young adult novel called A Step from Heaven, which is basically like a coming-of-age Korean immigrant story. And that book to me was like, the clearest mirror that I have ever had of my own experiences as, as an immigrant family. Um, and that won the John, I'm sorry, the um, Michael Prince award, which is like basically the Newbery equivalent for young adult literature. So for an older reading audience. So two Korean Americans in the same year won these big awards where no Korean American had ever won these awards before. And it was, it was a really big deal. So my, my pivot into children's literature happened at the same time. Mm. So I was really fortunate that Linda Sue Park came to Los Angeles as part of her book tour right after she won this award. And um, in 2003, I believe, I went to her event at um, LAPL Koreatown, the Pio Pico branch library, mm-hmm. where she read Pibimbap, which is a really great picture book that you should get for your kid if you don't have it already. Mm-hmm. Um, she read that book for her for, for the audience. And then there was like a lecture that she gave at a different library branch that I also attended. And that was my first time meeting a Korean American children's book writer. I also met Anna shortly thereafter. I went to uh, Washington, D.C., and they were, it was 2003, so it was the Korean Centennial, and they had a um, children's book celebration as part mm. of the Centennial, organized by Terry Hong, who I should also introduce you to. Um, and I met Anna there, and it was phenomenal. I mean, yeah, but I, I share this story because I was 23 years old when I met Linda Sue Park, when I first started reading children's literature that had Korean people in it. My daughter was four months old when she first met Linda Sue Park. So Linda Sue came to Minnesota. Um, I was on the Curlin Award Committee and we selected her as our winner. The Curlin is a children's literature research collection here in Minnesota. And I was on the Friends Board and um, and on the Curlin Award Committee, we selected her as our recipient. So she came and she gave mm. a talk. And I introduced her. So to like meet her when I was 23 and then have Linda Sue come here and to introduce her for this award and have my family there, my four month old daughter, like meeting this author who I had not met until I was 23. And we have all of Linda Sue's book in our house, books in our house. We have Peeping Butt. My daughter loves reading that book. Um, we have all of her books here. Like the trajectory of my daughter's reading experience, like that's going to be very different yes. from mine from you know having read only seen only two asian american characters whose lives were very different from mine right in in children's books until i was 23 years old to my daughter who like has a shelf like you know this is just like korean american children's books quadruple that for all the asian american picture books that i have and then like quadruple that again to include all the chapter books and young adult novels that i have in my house you know if i could show you a picture of the bookshelves in our basement you'd be like 
Do you have any savings? We also can never move. Yeah. Um, but, you know, today's children have access to so many more stories than we did when we were young. Even when we were like 20, they have like our children today have access. And it's a matter of amplifying those stories and making sure that they get into the hands of children. And you don't have to be a librarian for that to happen. You don't have to be a teacher for that to happen. Just Google Asian American children's literature, Google my name. Like I have lists that I've curated, um, but be careful too, because just because a book is published doesn't mean it's a good book. You know, there are books out there that I'm like, did you really make this? Who thought this was a good idea? Right. Like there are two books out there that have the word kimchi in the title. And um, one of them is called No Kimchi for Me. And the other one is called Babies Don't Eat Kimchi. Just based on the title, I probably wouldn't read it. Yeah. How do you say no? I mean, yeah. Right. Like they already, like just from the titles, you get this like negative connotation of kimchi, right? And like the baby one is about like how babies don't eat kimchi. They also don't eat strawberries. They also don't eat whatever else. And that's fine. But like, why the heck does the title have to be babies don't eat kimchi? Why can't it be babies babies don't eat strawberries, right? And the other one is like this little girl who's like trying to eat kimchi because like all her other family members are eating kimchi and she just can't eat it and she hates it. And like in the middle of the book, there's a spread that's like, arg, I hate kimchi. And I'm like, I cannot imagine reading this book out loud to an audience of kids with like a Korean kid in it and having kids laugh. And the shame. And the shame. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm just like, what on earth? Um, There are other picture books like Roy Choi, you know, Roy Choi, the chef, Mm -hmm. the Kogi Taco man. There's a picture book about him, Chef Roy Choi and the Korean food, uh, Korean food, street food remix, I think is the title. Um, and it's a it's a beautiful picture book. It's we believe it's the first picture book, or sorry, the author illustrator publishing team believes it's the first children's picture book that uses graffiti as its main form of art. It is beautiful, mm. um, and so you know, kimchi is presented in that book as just like this normal, yeah. you know, you just have kimchi at the table because that's right. what we eat. Um, and then Juna's jar is a picture book where Juna has all these kimchi jars that are empty because her family eats kimchi so yeah. fast, right? And so, you know, like, I really love these other picture books that, like, have kimchi as sort of this normal thing that we just eat. It's not something that's gross and inedible. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so amazing. The And we talked a little bit earlier about the, the stereotypical, almost satirical um, old Nana being the librarian, but I am my child's librarian. And you yeah. are your child's librarian, too. Yeah. They only get to consume what you put in front of them. Yeah. And so you have this, yes, it's a responsibility, but this gift to, they want to be like you, right? So like, I look, I, I, you know, uh, my wife and I talk sometimes and it's like, really? Like, do you have, you know, it's like, yes, because it's important to me. He's going to appreciate it one day, right? Because, yeah. so it, it's funny you mentioned that story about the author. So I took my son to, um, when Helena had her first book, The Turtle Ship, she had a book thing, and, and her um, and, and her illustrator Colleen was there too. And you know, it was a packed house and standing room only. And you know, we waited in line. We bought books. We had them sign it. Took some photos. And then, literally yesterday, he read that book again. And then I said, "Hey, Jacob, let me show you some cool pictures." And so, you know, he loves looking at my phone because he thinks it's like video time. And I was like, "No, I'm going to show you some pictures." And, <laughs> And I was like, hey, remember that book you love to read? Like, this is you with the author. And this is, look, this is the person who drew all those pictures, wrote a letter to you. Go check it in your book. 
and the smile on his face of oh my god like this and he doesn't understand the 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 relevancy of somebody that looks like him right we all need to do things in concert right like writing books is the first step then we have to put it in front of our kids then we have to let them know why it's important and then hopefully when all this is in motion there has to be enough people like you to allow other people who are not in the literary world like me to say these are the books you should read mm-hmm. oh i get a lot of text messages a lot of facebook messages from my friends yeah yeah i i you know yeah. there's something that i'll probably announce soon that i wanted to talk to you about too about helping get that message out because the other part that i'm with this platform that we are building is let's circulate the money within our own economy Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. support the people that create things for us. We know that they will then use those funds to further amplify us and the work for the people that yeah. look like each other. And we don't we don't want that one unsuc- unsuccessful project that becomes the thing that has that person give up before yeah. they create the real masterpiece that can touch more yeah. of the world, right? So yeah. we don't have any paid advertisers on this program yet. Mm-hmm. And if and when we get to that point, I've made a commitment, and I will say this publicly, I'll only take money from people who are Asian American business owners. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if that means saying no to the big Mm -hmm. dogs out there, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Outside of where we host this episode on the internet, every Mm -hmm. single dollar that we've spent Mm -hmm. um, producing this show has gone to somebody that looks like me and you. Mm -hmm. That's important to me. Um, So. And it's more important than ever. Look, there's so many toys to buy. Right now, people are probably getting to that stage and they're homeschooling of, holy shit, we need to buy more stuff. And yeah, so yeah. Let, let, you know, let, let's transition that a little bit to yeah. fewer or less toys, um, mm-hmm. fewer or less screens, and you know, putting books of kids that look like them. And as you mentioned, there are books for one-year-olds and there are mm-hmm. amazing books for teenagers um, oh my God! Abigail so Ingwen just wrote yeah. "Love for Taipei." That's a freaking New York yeah. Times bestseller. It's cool. There's validation in every part of the world that says yeah. not only do our stories matter to people like me and you, but for you to get to New York Times bestseller list like Abigail has, like you need to, you know, that that story is just a human story. It's a fun coming of age story that just happens to have a bunch of kids that went back to Taiwan. Like, there's nothing, you know, it's not a yeah. specific thing, but. Man, I I think we can talk forever. (laughs) And and I know we can. I think that the ability for authors to synthesize not only their own lived in experience, but also make sense of what they've observed in the world, um, to do right by the characters in the story and the families that they represent, to do it in a right way is such a gift. Right now, it is a very challenging time um, for people that look like me and you. It just yeah. is. It's it's a tough, tough time. Um, you you and I both have medical professionals near and dear to us. That's a challenge. Our students are suffering. Our friends are suffering. That's a big challenge. And of course, there's the you know the, the stupid racism and the hate crimes that you know people um, with the ability to or the responsibility to aren't stemming. Um, they're in fact sometimes encouraging it silently. So it, it, it's it's a tough time. So we didn't really get to talk at all about your teaching part of your life, which I know is a big, big part of your life. But share with us one thing that you've shared with your students or you'd like to share with students who may be listening from Sarah, the professor, 
of how do we get through these times? How do we deal with this changing uh, stuff? And taking classes online is hard when you don't have that format. I know you thought about, you know, that and the professors and, you know, just sensible, logical things. And we often forget that professors also have children at home. We often forget that um, not not every professor is wealthy with access to the things that they need to teach properly. And universities, I mean, let's not even talk about institutional, you know, bias in decision making. But, you know, by and large, the people who direct policies in terms of how we shifted from in-person to online education are people with so much wealth and so much privilege and so much access to things that they don't even think about, wait, does that even make sense from a connectivity perspective? Right. Do our professors have the equipment at home to teach properly? But it's, yeah, again, that's a different conversation. Um, and, and for all the professors out there and the teachers out there, wow, like oh, you yeah. are... Yeah. Imagine, you know, the, the younger elementary school uh, teachers, if, if they're younger, they may have kids of their own. So how the heck, yeah. how the heck are you supposed to teach both your students via whatever, your yeah. children at home, dealing with all this crap, um, in economic turmoil, your spouse, your partner, your parents, yours. Share, and it doesn't have to, there's no perfect thing to say, but but say, yeah. share something with, with our audience that you have or that you would like to share with the student population in in terms of how we can get all how we can get through these times gosh it's been yeah it's been really hard i mean we are we are comfortable here you know we have everything that we need but that doesn't mean that my students do you know and so um when we transitioned or when we knew that we had to transition. I was reading online, like there's, there's all these Facebook groups that spring up, you know, immediately, like after we started transitioning online of um, teachers and professors talking to one another about how to make it easier on our students. Um, And some classes have to be taught synchronously. I understand that for whatever reason, like that's not my class. Okay. You do you, but I knew that I would not be teaching my classes synchronously. I've taught asynchronously before. And so I had a little bit of an idea Um, of what it could look like. And I had, uh, I was able to see two of my classes before we went online. One class meets every other week. And so that class, I was very sad not to see again and to like prep them in person about what it was going to look like if and when we had to move online. But um, yeah, I mean, I, my, my perspective is like, give students the benefit of the doubt, give students compassion, um, because we don't know what they're going through. Like, I don't, you know, students are not just these like autonomous beings who are by themselves, like unaffiliated with parents or partners or children or close friends who are their chosen family. Um, You know, just because they're relatively younger does not mean that they're not also autoimmune compromised or um, have other underlying health issues. And so for me, it was really, really important that my students knew first and foremost that any revisions I made to our class in order to move online were made with like, hopefully a sense of compassion. Like if they, if they read that in all of my changes and all of my emails, then like mission accomplished. Um, so I hope that other students who are, um, whose classes have had to go online also had professors who were talking to each other And hearing that same message of compassion, have compassion on your students, make it easier, don't make it harder, don't add work or anything like that. Um, 
And if they didn't get that memo, then um, explain. Like, I, I really hate that the labor of that work has to be on the student, but email your professor and say, this is not sustainable. This is not possible. I don't have, I literally do not have the internet bandwidth to like record a video and upload it. You know, I literally do not have the bandwidth for that. Um, or I don't have the psycholo psychological, emotional bandwidth for that because X, Y, and Z or whatever. I mean, I hate that like students have to, to, um, explain all of that, but they might have to, because some professors didn't get the memo. Like I, you know, my students give a lot of presentations in class. Like I explained before with the text presentations and I'm teaching a class on library services to children and teens, and they're supposed to be giving two presentations. And we had to end class before the majority of the students could give those two presentations. And so I told the students, if you want to record your presentation, if you have the capacity, the technology, et cetera, to record yourself giving that presentation, then you can do that. But you also have to do the extra work of captioning that presentation because it has to be accessible when you put it online. Whoa. Um, yeah. So I said, you can choose to do that if you want. That's fine. But it has to be captioned if you're going to do that. And so you're going to have to learn this new technology. And I had a couple students do it and they did a phenomenal job. And I was glad for that. Um, but I said to students, if you don't want to do that, and that's okay, that's okay. If you don't, then I want you to turn to someone that you live with um, or, you know, some, someone, you know, you can, or if you have the bandwidth, you can do this virtually um, and, and give the presentation to that person and then ask for their feedback and then reflect on their feedback. And then on the discussion board, share about it. And so there's this alternate option, right? Like if you don't have the bandwidth to do the assignment in this way, then do it in this way. Um, and I've gotten emails back from my students, um, from all of my classes. Um, and then like I give extensions out, I give it out like candy, you know, you get an extension and you get an extension you get, and you know, I don't, I don't mind. Um, because I, you know, I, I tell my students, even before this pandemic, I was telling them, you know, it's more important to me that you do a good job on this assignment than it is to me that you turn it in on time. Yep. And so um, if, it, if what you need is a couple more days, then just take a couple more days. And so I've gotten a lot of emails from students thanking me for being flexible and things like that. And, and I hope that the students out there are, um, are, are having that kind of relationship with their professors as well. Um, and if they are, please thank them. Because if we don't know that we're, we're doing something that helps you, then we're just like, am I doing a good job? Am I not? You know, so if, if you have a professor that you really appreciate, please let them know. Um, you know, it also makes you feel better. Sarah, I, we need more people like you in the universe. I think it, I, you know, um, I've, I've not the first time I've, I've said this to you, so it shouldn't come as a surprise. And I'm sure I'm not the person, not the only person to ever say it to you, but you've taken your privilege. You've taken your access to great education. Um, you've taken your access to have the audacity to pursue doctorate level education in a field that isn't necessarily deemed as essential, which is a big buzzword here in 2020, nor is it on the, the short list of Korean American parents. God, I wish my parent, you know, my daughter, my son would have a PhD in children's literature. Right. Um, but you, you've done it and, and you've taken the opportunities that you have had and you could have been a high powered, very wealthy lawyer. You could have done a lot of things in the pursuit of uh, material success badges, let's say, but 
you you've really um, done things that have inspired me in the process to do this, to live the life of a parent of Korean American children, albeit in the middle of America, less diverse than where I am, to do the right things to um, to 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 put pictures and words in front of them that while they may not have any idea what is going on, that it builds such character, such confidence, such pride of who they will always be. Um, I mean, you, you know this, and most of our listeners do too. Like, I'm doing this for my kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, I hope to grow old with them. But if I don't, they'll listen to this years from now, right? And, and your kids will listen to this years from now. And because we believe that our grandparents and parents, in an effort to shield us from the bad that they went through, they never memorialize their stuff. Mm-hmm. And yes, access to technology and the ability to memorialize was vastly different, but we have this now. And so mm-hmm. thank you for doing what you do. It is more than inspiring. I don't know how you find the time in the day to do all that you do for the day job. Um I mean, look, you, you got to come back because people are like, Jerry, this is your longest episode ever. And I get <laughs> it, but it's worth it. So, all right, listen, so if you've made it, to, so if you're listening and you've made it to the one hour and 38 minute mark, shoot me an email and I will send you any book that Sarah mentioned on the podcast. And wow. That's, that and, that's, so and, and that's good for the first three people. So if you're the fourth person, I'll tell you no. If you're the fourth person, I will get a signed copy of one of the books and send it to oh, you. Oh shit! Then you have to want to. You want to wait for the fourth person. Jeez. Yeah, you have to be the fourth person. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. Really, like you know, to to you, Sarah, and for people who've stuck around yeah. for this long, like thank you because books are things that many of us, heck, myself included, were necessary evils to get through school. They weren't yeah. things of joy, right? Like maybe because you never saw yourself in them. Maybe. Maybe. You saw yourself. Maybe. Probably, right? Like my my brother read every, still has read every single Star Wars book ever published in the history of mankind. And that was my daughter would be best friends. And he read a lot, right? But I was like, to me, that wasn't real. And maybe you're onto something that I didn't see my people. And and even at an early age, I was this like, you know, representation and identity warrior that was hidden (laughs) and said, I don't want to keep reading stories about, you know, all the, you know, happy white boys who get to do all the fun stuff. I don't know, but I just never saw myself in these stories of like like completely tangent, but like I I still remember reading Catcher in the Rye and go, I don't even understand the words that they're using, right? (laughs) That was supposed to be the quintessential American literature book that said, this is what America... This is an American teenager. You're prototypical American teenager. Well, shit, when people say, make America great again, maybe that's what the time they were referring to. And there was a lot of racism in that book. There was a lot of just bullshit in that book that I don't ever want to see again. So the work that you're doing now, it is an impossible task to categorize and to chronicle and then to amplify all the stuff that is so necessary. I don't know if the work is ever complete, but if if it converts one person to buy a book for their child, for their niece, nephew, child's friend, um, based, based on what you've done, Sarah, I too have pivoted away from buying toys for my friends or my kids' friends and just buying books. And guess what? It's the book that I think they should read. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if you get a book from uncle Jerry, it's probably going to have some Asian kids in it. And yep. 
Mm-hmm. That's meaningful for somebody. Like you said, this is not about Asian kids only. This is about getting the books Everybody. in the hands of yeah. people who will grow up with our kids. So, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll be honest. Like when when we record and, and it goes north of an hour, like it is challenging mentally, emotionally, just to like stay on. And again, if you've listened this far, like you might be like, "Holy crap!" Like, but it's fun. And when you're having fun, you don't get tired, right? So, no, you don't. It's like- we're just talking with friends about right. things that matter to us. And, and yeah. this is a conversation that I've been really looking forward to having because it's a topic that I only grew to appreciate like into my 30s. Like I read yeah. a lot in 2019. Yeah. Like I didn't read crap in my 20s. I was busy yeah. hanging out and drinking, right? Like, but <laughs> um, I, I, I've done, I've made that switch, you know, um, to, to the delight, to the delight of uh, my, my family. But Man, this has been fun. I, I hope we get to continue the conversation and talk about a lot more things that um, really, really matter. Um, heck, I've always told you since day one that you need your own show to then t- talk to the authors from the interviewer's chair. I've and, considered and, it, yeah. and, and I've and I'm yeah. purposely saying it on the on the air per se to to commit to the universe that I think you should. You don't have to answer me now, but I think you should. <laughs> um, yeah. It's it's a pleasure, and I and I think. You have also embodied the fact that it does not matter where you live, what your day job is. We are all interconnected by this thing called the internet. We live in <laughs> digital communities. We live in physical communities. The last time I saw you in person was probably 2003, 2004. Gosh, such a long time. Yeah. You know, what's crazy is most of my friends who have come on the show, it's like, dude, when's the last time we saw each other? Like, and, and we're, yeah. we're old enough now, like, oh, 20 years ago is like a real thing. And you're like, oh, my yeah. God, we're so old. Yeah. Um, but it might have been 15 years ago. I don't know. But thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for creating a world of positivity and encouraging us to seek the stories that we never knew we needed in our lives because it is so important. Everybody's wondering, what book is Sarah going to write at some point? Because I think <laughs> the chronicling of that is going to be fascinating because you are in the middle of the field, you are on the field and you are right now just observing and absorbing. And I think that perspective is going to be fascinating. Um, I, I hope we inspire a lot more people that look like me and you and everybody else in this world to pursue things like libraries um, because that is not a priority for some people in government to keep funding those opportunities um, as things go more digital um, continue mm-hmm. to support your local bookstores. Um, I mean, heck, I would even put Barnes and Nobles in the local bookstore category for now because at mm-hmm. least you can go physically go pick it up and you know touch and see and, and go to authors' events. There, there's a lot of things that you can do. If you've listened this far, go buy a book. You, you have the discipline and the tenacity to listen to this episode. Please go buy a book, any book that looks like you, looks like me. So I want to end the episode the way that we end all of our shows. And it is an homage back to the name of the show, The Eurasian Americans. As we've talked so much about storytelling, um, this show is really with the mission of it being a letter to us and from us, but ultimately for all of us. And as it was so important for you to have your daughter at month four meet the author that you met at age 23, I wonder how the world would be different today if you had that experience at month four. Not because our parents didn't love us. They just lived in a different world. They didn't know. know. 
it wasn't available to them. Korean American authors were not winning national book titles in the 80s. Maybe we weren't even encouraged or allowed to get through the doors of the publishing houses. It was a different world. But I still believe that we can change the future, and we can. So if you would, write a letter to us, the Asian American community, however you define that. And so if you could please help us finish out the show by finishing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I'm going to say something that we've said so many times already on this show. Our stories matter. They are beautiful and painful and triumphant, and they matter. So share your story in whatever medium you like and share them especially with young people because our young Asian Americans need to see people like you doing amazing things. So I'm, I'm so thankful that you invited me on this show, that you asked me more than once. <laughs> Um, and just for this opportunity to chat with you, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and you know, like, like I said, I'm all about amplifying stories by and about Asian Americans and there's so many great books out there. And so, yeah, please, um, buy the books, um, share them with all the young people in your lives and, um, yeah, and not especially, but not only Asian American stories. There's a lot of really great books by indigenous writers and mm. black writers and Latinx writers and um, writers who have disabilities and writers who are queer. I mean, there are so many. And, you know, there are intersecting identities there too, right? Like not all Asians are only Asian. Yep. We have black Asians, right? And so, um, yeah, please just buy all of our stories, read all of our stories, share all of our stories with as many people and especially with young people. And I'll say you would be surprised at the response rate if you reach out to some of these people. Yeah. They engage. They want to engage. They tell stories because they want to connect with people. Yeah. Um, stories connect. Yeah. It's so, so yeah. reading is social. Yeah. I, yeah. I've, I've had great conversations with people. Um, you know, it's, I, I don't know. We, we, again, we can talk about this for hours, but two, two books written by two badass Korean Americans. Um, one was Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling. Um, and the other one, uh, Pachinko, were written by Korean oh women who went to I my high school, right? So I was like, are you serious? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, there are some badass yeah. Korean Americans coming yeah. out of young science that are doing amazing yeah. things. And, and yeah. so, you know, like I just hit him up and I was like, hey, you know, leading with, we went to the same high school thing, but I was like, yeah. I'm doing this thing. And yeah. Yeah. like amazing things happen because, yeah. and, and look, you, you guys, people have to realize too, authors are marketers storytellers yeah. and marketers because it doesn't matter if you create a masterpiece you have to go yeah. then get people to read it and so yeah. they're gonna they're gonna engage with you i i got a note from somebody unsolicited yesterday from a listener of ours and you know vu from austin thank you for sending this message and he said i'm about halfway through your show and i cannot say enough about how this show has made me feel as a vietnam wow. living in the middle of texas yeah it's not a shock because i know these there's a reason why we did this because those stories matter. Yeah. But every one of those thank you notes changes my world because there are days you want to give up. There are days when you're tired. It might be fun to think like, oh, dude, you get to talk for a living. Yeah, it's fun. But then the editing is exhausting. <laughs> the back end that you nobody yeah. sees is exhausting. But to yeah. get those bits of encouragement along the way are um, infinitely and, and just ridiculously, you know, nourishing. Yeah. So yeah. if you have read a book that has touched your heart, and even if you never get a response back, you've sent it, thank the people who created the work. Um, they probably don't hear it enough. 
um, particularly works that were published a while ago and they're done marketing themselves for that work. But um, you, you'd be surprised. And I think you might be able to connect in a way and have them inspire you or in a way have you inspire them to continue creating really, really life-changing pieces of work there that um, have impacted my life and continue to impact everybody else's life. So Sarah, thank you again for coming on the show. Um, just so ridiculous much. amount of gratitude. Thank, thanks uh, to your kids for, you know, allowing mom to uh, spend a couple hours yeah. with us and um, come back anytime. Let, let's hope that we can, I can visit you at that conference in October um, in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, you continue to change our community. Um, every author, every aspiring author um, should get to know you. Um, but, you. you know, and, and you've been so gracious in the things that I've asked of your time and your energy of the people that are in my life. So thank you. Um, continue kicking ass and please Thanks go write a damn book so we can go buy it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jerry. It was good thank chatting. You, Bye. Bye. If you've made it this far, thank you. Really appreciate you listening. Um, Sarah has really been an inspiration for me uh, to continue to read more books, to talk about these books, and to put the proper books, the right books, in front of our children. So I really, really want to thank her for making the time and thank her for the work that she has been doing and will continue to do. Um, If you found this story inspiring, please do share it with a friend or two. Um, However you share podcast episodes with your friends, Follow us and like us on Instagram and on Facebook at The Eurasian Americans. And you'll also find a link there to uh, apply to be on the show yourself. Please be healthy, please be safe, and please be happy. Until next time, this has been your host, Jerry Wan.